0: The thankfulness that we all feel to be here tonight again in Larbert, and we do unite in the prayer that's being offered that God will meet with us and help us, encourage us. Principal John MacLeod, in his book, Scottish Theology, wrote There is scarcely any segment of the circle of Christian truth that has had more abundant heed paid to it in the theology of Scotland than that which takes to do with the Church of God. And so you won't be surprised that I need to uh, refocus the title of the address this evening. The Doctrine of the Church in Scottish History is an immense subject, as Principal MacLeod says. And I want to speak more particularly on the churches and Christian unity in Scottish Presbyterian history. The churches and Christian unity in Scottish Presbyterian history. It seems to me to be true to say that while we do have great literature on the doctrine of the church that uh, some aspects of that are dealt with much more fully than others. For example uh, on the headship of Christ we have uh, the richest possible uh, literature, do we not? And on the collateral truth that it's the will of Christ made known in his word that alone is to define and control service in the church. We have great material on that subject. And on the subject of church government, particularly in relation uh, to other systems, episcopacy and others, we have a great heritage of truth. And on top of all that, we have the historical records of the cost that has been paid by men and women to uphold these convictions and similar convictions. But I suggest to you that there are certain aspects of the doctrine of the Church which are not so frequently covered and which I believe are particularly relevant and important to us at this present time. Of course, the uh, ecumenical movement is involved in discussion of parallel themes, but because they begin from an entirely different standpoint, their discussions are really irrelevant to the kind of thing which concerns us. So the subject that I want to try to look at with you is what is the relation between churches considered as denominations and the unity of the church universal? What is the relationship between churches as denominations and the unity of the church universal? Or to put it in the form of a question, would Christian unity be advanced if we could bring these various denominations into one common single church government. I want to begin in the early months of the year, 1559. Pre-Reformation Church is still in control. In Scotland, 1,028 parishes across the land, the official national church. And apart from that church, there were these groups of believers privy kirks in at least seven towns uh, worshipping in private houses worshipping sometimes in the fields, uh, groups of believing Christians in the words of John Leslie, a Roman Catholic opponent of these Christians he said these people meet in chimney nooks in secret holes and such private places to trouble the whole country quench all quietness and banish peace out of the land. Well it was during 1559 you remember that uh, these privy kirks gained such support in towns that uh, they became publicly established in at least seven towns, Perth, Dundee, Edinburgh and other places. And then the next year, 1560, I saw the Confession of Faith, professed and believed by the Protestants within the realm of Scotland. And this crucial document that I think we don't read often enough lays down the basis uh, for the existence of these reformed Kirks. And there are two chapters in the Confession of 1560 on that subject. The Confession stated that, according to Scripture, the Church has to be understood in two ways. The universal church, the elect of all ages, of all realms, of all nations and tongues. And second, particular churches, such as they say was in Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, and other places. And such kirk's we, the inhabitants of the realm of Scotland, professors of Christ Jesus, profess ourselves to have in our cities, towns, and places, reformed. So according to the statement of the Confession, the Roman Catholic Church had no biblical standing at all. It was not the universal church, and it was not a particular church, for it lacked the marks of a true particular church. laid down in the Confession, true preaching of the Word, proper administration of the sacraments, and ecclesiastical discipline, uprightly ministered as God's Word prescribes. So, uh, as you remember, and as we all know, there was a profound and there was an irreconcilable difference between the Protestant understanding of the church and the Roman Catholic view. According to Roman Catholicism, uh, men must first attach themselves to the church in order to be saved. According to the Protestant position, it is through faith in the gospel that men and women become Christians, and in becoming Christians, they become members of the body of Christ and members of his church. So, here is a difference that was a great watershed. The external position of the Church of Rome, salvation comes by belonging to the church. The idea that the church could become the synagogue of Satan as the reformers taught was utterly incomprehensible to Roman Catholics because salvation depended upon the Church. Cardinal Bellarmine, the eminent Roman Catholic apologist, said, I quote, that the Protestants, to constitute anyone a member of the Church, require internal graces. But we think that what is required is only an external profession and partaking of of the sacraments so for Bellarmine as John McPherson has said the church is an outward institution in which men are made holy and of which good and bad are alike the members so at the heart of the reformation was a protest against that understanding of the church in the words of Luther were I the only man on earth that held by the word I alone would be the church And I would be justified in pronouncing of all the rest of the world that it was not the church. So the Confession of Faith, you remember, was drawn up simply by those six ministers. And uh, in August of 1560, the same uh, year, the Scottish Parliament effectively ended the work of the pre-Reformation church. August 1560. Any further administration of the sacraments according to the pre-Reformation church was forbidden. All priests were required to recant. Those who continued to say mass were threatened with confiscation of property, banishment, and for a third offence, death. And yet it was a somewhat strange position because the pre-Reformation church continued to exist in its structure. The dioceses uh, of the church remained in existence, stipends were paid uh, but the faith that had so recently been persecuted had been pronounced to be the faith well very shortly pronounced to be the faith of the whole nation. So you remember how Queen Mary Queen of Scots partially endorsed this legislation and after she fled the country in 1567 the position became more regularized. 1567, end of the year, December the 15th, Parliament declared the Reformed Kirks of this realm to be the only true and holy Kirk of Jesus Christ within this realm. So the traditional machinery, over a thousand parishes, passed into the spiritual care of the Reformed. Not wholly into their care because uh, patrons and the right to present benefices to men Still, lay with in many cases with nobles and clan chiefs and with others. But by and large, the care of what had been the pre-Reformation church passed into the hands of the reformed leaders. So here we have a very new situation. Before that date, before 1560, the privy kirk's had prospered in the midst of persecution, and now they were supported by Parliament. And the position uh, became such that, as I've said, the structure uh, was inherited by them, and a new national religion and a new national church was thus established. And from one point of view, this was very desirable. For the reformers, it was a noble vision of a reformed church in all the land, national reformed church. But the problems, of course, were immense. I mention them briefly. The problem of personnel. First General Assembly, December of 1560, uh, the six ministers and 36 other men. Perhaps there were 80 to 90 men who might be trusted to be witnesses and to speak. But we are talking about, as I've said, over a thousand parishes. There was, therefore, a great problem with personnel. Another problem was more serious. Parliament uh, could... Uh, pronounce a change but it couldn't change men's hearts and it couldn't make pastors out of pre-Reformation priests. And yet that in fact happened in many cases. To retain their livings men who had formerly ministered in the Church of Rome became uh, ministers in the Reformed Church. Some of them indeed as we know converted men and others certainly not. Hugh Miller talks about this change in the Highlands And he says everyone should know it is quite a possible thing to be a Protestant, sound enough for all purposes of party without being a Christian at all. Hugh Miller. The rank and file of the population didn't need to change their faith in order to retain their living. That wasn't their position. But another motive influenced them. They had been taught for centuries that uh, the sacraments were essential to salvation. And now they were in a position where the only place where the sacraments could be uh, found were in the new national church. And indeed in all the parishes of that church it was a requirement uh, rather than a matter of permission that people should uh, partake of these sacraments. For the non-use of the sacraments people could be fined. The result of this was inevitable as Dr. Hutton of Paisley once said, The fiction of a national faith requiring no homage of the heart and life has been the fruitful source of nominal Christianity. So out of this arrangement came an abuse in the administration of the sacraments which persisted down through the centuries. 1699 when Boston became minister in simprin, he soon faced this situation the laxity in administration of the sacraments. Brought him to write, quote, From that time I had little fondness for national national churches strictly and properly so called, and wished for an amendment of the constitution of our own church as to the membership thereof. And a hundred years after Boston, James Alexander Haldane protested how the making of the church coextensive with the nation was a great hindrance to the understanding of what Christianity was. Because, he wrote, because it leads the great bulk of the inhabitants of a country to suppose themselves real Christians. All the ordinances are dispensed to them, if not grossly immoral, and that even by good men. There is not, I suppose, one child born in Scotland who has not been baptized. This indiscriminate administration of ordinances, he goes on, Counteracts in great measure the most faithful preaching. In the latter, faithful preaching, the minister separates between the precious and the vile. In the former, he confounds them together. Well, I don't intend to discuss why the leaders of the Reformed Church in Scotland in the 16th century came to allow a situation which could not do otherwise than compromise some of their own convictions. The Confession of 1560 had spoken of the church as, quote, a communion not of profane persons but of saints who as citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem have the fruition of the most inestimable benefits. Without question the Reformation had seen a powerful revival of true Christianity in various parts of Scotland but it was nothing like coextensive with the whole population now to be regarded as the national church. And sooner or later, to justify this situation, some adjustment would have to be made in the teaching of the church. And that adjustment came uh, quite soon, and it developed, as so many of you know, uh, it developed to maturity in the next century, in the 17th century. Let me talk about that for a little. 17th century Scottish Presbyterianism came to justify the condition of the National Church by means of a thoroughgoing distinction between the Church visible and the Church invisible. Genuine believers, they said, belong to the invisible Church. But all who profess Christ without any open scandal in their lives are valid members of the Church visible. So it was argued that external membership of the Church visible is a very different thing from possessing, quote, the privileges of Christians, the covenant promises, the titles of spouse, bride, temple of the Holy Spirit. And in consequence of this distinction, Samuel Rutherford believed that Christ is not the head of the visible church, but of the invisible. And further, according to John Macpherson's summary of Rutherford, quote, a community professing the faith in which the word is preached the sacraments administered and discipline is exercised, may not have in it one sincere believer, but only formal and heartless professors. And yet, it is a true visible church. It is not the profession of the possession of grace, but only the waiting upon the ordinances of grace that makes one a member of the church. In short, Fersen says, the church of Rutherford and, and John Brown of Amphrey was made up of all baptized adherents. All that is to say, of Christian descent. Now, end of quote. The circumstances often give appeal to an argument. And it's hard to believe that the eminent men of the 17th century could have accepted this justification for their national church had it not been for the situation with which they were trying to wrestle. But the argument had moved a long way from the simplicity of the Confession of 1560, which knew only a universal kirk and particular local churches. The New Testament, far from seeing the universal or invisible church as essentially different in its nature from local churches, refers the same privileges and promises to both. The glory of the universal is to be seen in the local. Boston Thomas Boston was right to question the dichotomy between the invisible and visible. Christ hath not, he says, two churches, one visible and another invisible, but one church, which is in one aspect visible and in another aspect invisible. Now, you know John Murray has elaborated on that and taught very clearly on it in his um, collected writings. He, of course... uh, Allows as, as uh, all reform writers have allowed, for the fact that uh, due to the fallibility of human judgment, the unregenerate will be found in the true church. There's no question about that. But what he objects to, and what Boston and these other men were questioning, was whether we should so define the church as to make people valid members who do not possess grace. And uh, most of you know how... Uh, important that issue is and how clearly John Murray has dealt with it. Now in the 17th century the Scots defended the national church and they went further. Whatever the defects they recognized in the church as visible, they held that a national organic unity was essential if the oneness of Christ's kingdom was to be seen. It seems anomalous, that they should have combined a low view of church membership with a high view of visible unity. To them it seemed self-evident that as Christ has only one church, there has to be a unity in government. And if that oneness is to be preserved, if that oneness is to be preserved, is Christ divided? asked Rutherford. There is but one Christ, he says. Yea, the head and the body make but one. So you cannot divide the body without dividing Christ. The end of his quote. The only alternative they could see to a church that was one in her organization, the only alternative was schism and disunity. Thus James Durham could write, It is impossible for those that maintain that principle of the unity of the Catholic visible church to own a divided way of administering government Or other ordinances. But it will infer, if there's any such division in government, it will infer either that one party has no interest in the church, or that one church may be many. And so that the unity thereof in its visible state is to no purpose. This we take for granted. Take for granted, in other words. But unless there is one church, there is schism. So what Durham took for granted became the fixed view in Scottish history. Within a nation, there can only be one church. And thus, when a division occurs, the immediate issue is, which side continues the line of the true church? So, in the Declaration of 1695, the Reformed Presbyterians of the United Societies, they rejected what they regarded as the compromise settlement of the Church of Scotland in 1689, and called themselves, quote, "...the true Presbyterian Church of Christ in Scotland." Seventeen thirty-three the secession insisted, the Eskins insisted that in reality it was no secession at all. Rather, they were the faithful representatives of the one church. To quote Ebenezer Ruskin, we have made a secession from the judicatories of the established church, yet we never made a secession from the visible church of Christ in Scotland by no manner of means. So Walker represents a secessionist uh, when he writes, It was not a separation from the Church of Scotland, that ideal church of 1638, which had so great a hold of all good Presbyterians. It was a mere secession from the present occupants, as it were, of this divine temple. So the similar thinking was prevailing in parts of the Scottish Highlands early in the 19th century. John MacLeod has that book on the, the separatists of the North Christians who left their parish churches, ungodly, unbelieving ministers, they left their parish churches, they held their own services, yet they meant to remain, quote, within the church. And to prove that they remained within the church, they would occasionally attend communions and they sought to have their children baptized by regular ministers. It's the same idea. And that 17th century theology was still in place, of course, in 1843. According to the founders of the Free Church of Scotland, they were not a new denomination at all. The language was, quote, we separate as members of the Church of Scotland from that church as now established by law because it has ceased to be what it formerly was understood to be, end of quote. So the official organ of the Free Church in 1843 wrote, I quote, the very... It spoke, it spoke of the very great importance of the free church adopting no course which might even seem to invalidate her character and claim to be regarded still and always as Scotland's rightful, true national church. Scarcely anything, they said, could be more pernicious to the position, duties and prospects of the free church than for her to allow herself to acquire the aspect and character of a mere sect. End of quote. Free Church Magazine, 1845. So the Free Church minority, which refused to join the United Free Church in 1900, repeated more or less the same argument. The minority professed that they rested not on, quote, the possession of funds or stone or lime, but on the continued testimony of the church of 1843, which was, quote, not a new church, but the church of Scotland, only free. So you see the argument. I'm arguing that the in the 17th century the national church was defended on the grounds that there had to be only one church, otherwise the unity of the body of Christ was destroyed. And that was so firmly believed that... In the centuries following, it became a very decisive matter who was still preserving the line of the true church. Was it the Reformed Presbyterians? Was it the secession of 1733? Was it the free church in uh, 1843? Was it the free Presbyterians in 1893? The same discussion went on, and it was a discussion that was uh, unstructured, really, by the thinking of the 17th century. And, of course, we haven't had time to go into it, but this, the thinking of the 17th century was... Uh, It would seem to be very largely structured by Augustine and controversy with the Donatists of a much earlier age. So the ideas of one generation go down through the next, don't they? So I want to put to you two arguments why I believe that this position failed. And the first reason is that it had the wrong priority. The idea of upholding Christian unity by means of recognizing only one church failed because it elevated the form of church government to a position of primary importance. The Presbyterians of the 17th century rightly saw that Christian unity is a biblical essential. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. New commandment I give unto you. Unity is essential to the Christian faith, but... They erred in thinking that this unity can only be secured by means of one single ecclesiastical structure. And they believed that divine right Presbyterianism was the only uh, system that could provide uh, such unity. And of course they believed that it was not to be national, but international. Gillespie says... uh, The line of ecclesiastical subordination is longer and further stretched than that of the line of civil subordination for a national synod must be subordinate and subject to a universal synod. So you had a tiered system not simply to a national general assembly but hopefully to a universal synod. And this was a means to unity. And this was so definitely believed by the Scots divines at Westminster that inevitably they had to regard all who did not share their view of church order as opponents of Christian unity. For unity, there had to be a common government for all churches. So I'm not here dealing with how far the Presbyterian system is biblical, but my point is that unity does not take its starting point at the organizational level. It starts rather with the gospel and with principles directly related to the gospel. Unity begins with believers being in Christ and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And from that fact, love and sympathy and helpfulness between Christians will necessarily and naturally follow and and be practiced as circumstances permit. For Christ is not divided, nor are his people. They belong to one church, general assembly of the church of the firstborn, So Christians in different parts of the world are united in one head even though they never meet on earth and their unity depends upon participation in a common life not in their subjection to a common universal form of church government. So what I'm saying really I believe is the emphasis of the reformers against the externalism of the Roman church. And I'm suggesting to you that in the 17th century, due in part to the circumstances that prevailed, the discussion became skewed. Uh, now, the, the Roman Catholics of the 16th century argued against the Reformers that uh, the visible church disappeared because they had no idea of a common government or a common control. And it was, uh, it was said that there... Ideas would just lead to, lead to confusion. To which people like William Tyndale replied that there is a rule in the church, and it is the rule of Scripture, and it is the rule of what Tyndale calls the law of love. And the reformers argued that this rule had a great reality for true believers, and it bore fruit, which the supposed unity of the Roman church before the Reformation could not begin to parallel. But as I say, in the next century, priorities became inverted, as though there could be no Christian unity without uniformity in government. And so, as is well known, the Westminster Assembly founded, not because of disagreement on the gospel or on the duties of Christians to one another, but because not all could see that a tiered system of church courts, the lower subordinate to the higher, was laid down in the New Testament as necessary to unity. So John Hardy Witt states the position of the minority, the independents at the assembly, uh, when he writes, The independents responded, that is to the majority, that they did not desire a total separation. They would practice the same worship, have the same office bearers, the same qualifications for church membership which the assembly itself holds forth, and the same censures. They would be accountable to the state and hold communion with the Presbyterian churches by an occasional exchange of preachers and sharing of the sacraments, both of baptism and the Lord's Supper. In difficult case, they would advise with the elders of other churches, and should a miscarriage occur, they would account to them, that is, the elders of other churches. This was, the independents argued, quite another thing than total separation and did not deserve to be scored with the odious name of schism. A schism consists, they said, in an open breach of Christian love and not in every diversity of opinion and practice. So the mistake of the majority at Westminster, and I say mistake, I believe it was a mistake, was the attempt to put all the Christians in the British Isles under one common church government and to count any deviation from that government as schism. And the sheer realities of Christian experience were to prove that that thinking was wrong. The church is not primarily an external society. Certainly its members are to be joined in churches where gospel truth is preached and practiced, but to unchurch. An evangelical congregation, because it has different views of how it should be connected with another such church, is to elevate questions of government to the same level as the gospel itself. From the 17th century onwards, Christian experience made it impossible to say that Christian unity must mean a formal connection of churches. There were simply too many Christians, united in the fundamentals of heart and mind and yet with different views on issues of church order. Too many to implement what is now called, by the ecumenical movement, organic unity. Now perhaps, I hesitate, but perhaps, uh, this recognition was slower coming in Scotland. As already noted in 1843, a Free Church of Scotland writer could speak of a mere sect being the alternative to being Scotland's rightful, true and national church that was the alternative yet by that date the Free Church magazine was no longer speaking with one voice and a better understanding was very soon to prevail it came to be recognized that no Protestant and Evangelical denomination had any, ex- any exclusive claim to the word church thus in a leading article on church on Christian union in the Free Church magazine 1845 it was written, quote, "It is in vain for any one church to say we are blameless, for we have all sinned and violated Christian love and fellowship. But it is not for any one denomination to take upon itself the office of censor, and assert that though doubtless guilty in some degree, others are more so. We humbly, yet very gratefully, regard." the increase of evangelical principles among the various denominations as rapidly producing the only ground on which a true christian union can be realized for as by the prevalence of evangelical principles union with god will be realized so by union with him we shall realize union with each others with each other and so the theologians of the free church developed this you may call it a new uh, position, new certainly in terms of the 17th century teaching. So William Cunningham wrote Does the unity ascribed in Scripture to the Church imply that there must be entire uniformity in all matters of belief and practice, or that all societies claiming to be regarded as churches must be included in one external visible communion and subject to one external visible government? It can, says Cunningham, it can easily be proved that there is no warrant in Scripture for alleging that the unity there predicated of the Church necessarily implies this. Well, that would have been a stunning statement at the Westminster Confession, at the Westminster Assembly, wouldn't it? You see what he's saying? It can easily be proved that there is no warrant in Scripture for alleging that the unity that is there predicated of the Church of Christ necessarily implies external, visible, Communion. Similarly, Bannerman, two volumes of the church, rejected the idea that being a true church depends upon its form of government and its connection with other churches. Where that idea is adopted, he wrote, there begins, quote, there begins that error which is developed in the intolerant principles of many of the present day who would unchurch all denominations but their own. Admit that the possession of a true faith and that alone is of the essence of a church and you assign to the truth the place and importance that rightfully belongs to it. But join to the possession of the true faith the administration of outward ordinances as necessary to constitute a Christian church and you assign to outward ordinances a rank and value which are not justly theirs and make them of primary and not as they truly are of secondary importance. Well, that's Cunningham and Bannerman. And the the American Presbyterians were at the same time uh, developing the very (coughs) same arguments. Uh, uh, Robert L. Dabney has a very fine treatment of Christian unity in his two volumes of discussions. Archibald Alexander Hodge says, If God if God had followed our idea, how simple it would have been to make a united church descending from Adam and Eve. Instead, Hodge went on, the external organization of the church is only accidental and temporary and subject to change and variation. The Christian religion which we receive takes various colours and tones from the nationality, from the tribe, from the race. Undoubtedly there is such a thing as schism. All high churchism, all claims that our church is the one church and the only church, are of the essence of schism. All pride and bigotry are of the essence of schism. All want of universal love, all jealousy, all attempts to take advantage of others in controversy or in church extension are of the essence of schism. Well, the other Americans I mustn't uh, pause on, but they, they develop the same argument which is developed here in Scotland after 1843, and which, as I say, are illustrated in the men I've quoted. Now, the second reason why the argument failed The argument, that is, that Christian Christian unity depends on the unity of one church under one government. The second reason it failed was that inevitably it encouraged an exclusiveness which is alien and contrary to the spirit of the gospel. If there is only one church which can represent the unity of the body of Christ, then those who remain outside her fellowship can easily be regarded as being in a condition of schism, and so public cooperation with them is not encouraged, perhaps not even permitted. You see that the deduction that follows? If there is one church that has the unique privilege of representing the unity of the body of Christ, then not to belong to that church is to be in a position which we uh, can't countenance fellowship with such people. So this scenario is not a theoretical possibility, it's what has happened in Scotland. It was just such thinking among the secession churches uh, that led to the principle that was laid down in the secession churches, no communion without union. No communion without union. And even in the 19th century, this principle was still being upheld. Thomas McCree, the elder, for example, believed, quote, "Well, well, the no communion without union principle followed axiomatically from the unity of the church. He wrote that to allow partial or occasional communion among Christians who otherwise remain separate with their distinct constitutions strikes against the radical principles of the unity of the church and confirms schism. For where communion is lawful it will not be easy to vindicate separation from the charge of schism. Where communion is lawful it will not be easy to vindicate separation from the charge of schism. In other words, if occasional communion is permissible, then there ought to be complete union. And if there isn't complete union, then there shouldn't be occasional communion. Well, that is a, an argument that uh, Thomas McCree, who's a great distinguished man, as, as we all know, but the greatest men are men at best, and that, that's a logical argument that proceeds from certain premises. And it leads to exclusiveness. And that's the reason, ultimately, of the rift. Between the seceders and Whitfield in 1742. The seceders wanted Whitfield to preach only for them because they were the true church. They had uh, suffered at the hands of the church they had left, the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, and uh, they believed that Whitfield couldn't be in communion with them and with the evangelicals in the Church of Scotland. And more seriously, when the revival came at Camber's Lang, Kilsyth, the seceders couldn't believe it was a divine blessing because how could the Holy Spirit be poured out uh, on a situation that was really no church at all. So, the principle that would restrict fellowship on the grounds of churchmanship has to be wrong. It's alien to the instincts of the Christian life. And it's directly contrary to the Westminster Confession in that beautiful chapter on the communion of saints. Let me remind you of the chapter, chapter 26. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ their head by his spirit and by faith have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection and glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to the mutual good both in the inward and the outward man. Beautiful chapter, isn't it? So, here we are meeting in Labut, and you remember there was once a minister in Labut called Robert Murray McChain, and he wrote on this very subject, his letter on the communion, with brethren of other denominations. And McChain said, "'Where any minister of any denomination holds the head, is sound in doctrine and blameless in life, preaches Christ and him crucified as the only way of pardon and the only source of holiness.' Especially if he has been owned of God in the conversion of souls and the upbuilding of saints, we are bound to hold ministerial communion with him whenever provid- providence opens the way. What are we that we should shut our pulpits against such a man? True, he may hold that prelacy is the scriptural form of church government. True, he may have inconsistencies of mind which we cannot account for. He may have prejudices of sect and education which destroy much of our comfort in meeting him. And can we plead exemption from these? He may sometimes have spoken rashly and uncharitably. I also have done the same. Still I cannot but own him as a servant of Christ. If the master owns him in his work, shall a sinful fellow servant disown him? McChain. So, uh, four concluding lessons. First, Scottish church history would have been very different if the two biblical usages of the word ecclesia stated in the Confession of 1560 had not had added to those usages the idea of a national church. And from that, as we have seen, came the conclusion that separation from the one church was schism. Yet while it is easy to be critical with hindsight, there were strong reasons which led the Scottish reformers to the position which they took they did not believe the civil government was to be neutral towards God they were patriots as well as Christians the civil and the Christian were intermixed in a way which is very difficult for us even to understand they believed that Roman Catholicism was a threat to men's bodies and liberty as well as to their souls So when the Scottish Parliament, for mixed motives, it has to be said, when the Scottish Parliament sided with the Reformation and was willing to recognize a reformed national church in the place of the church which it dispossessed, a church-state alliance appeared very desirable. It was expected that the church could remain independent of the state although receiving its support. Christ and his rule in the church were not to be subject to the civil powers. But the arrangement condoned a national comprehensiveness with respect to church membership which could not be other than dangerous and inconsistent with the purity of the church. What John Owen wrote of the developments in the 4th century have a very real parallel in the 16th and the 17th centuries. Owen says, It came to pass that in the accession of the nations in general unto the profession of the gospel, Church order was suited and framed unto their secular state. Herein, I say, did the guides of the church certainly miss their rule and depart from it in the days of Constantine the emperor and afterwards under other Christian emperors when whole towns, cities, yea, nations offered at once to join themselves unto it. That is the church day. Evident it is that they were not wrought hereunto by the same power with which those formerly under persecution were converted to the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. The motive, he's saying, wasn't the same. And this quickly manifested itself in the lives and conversations of many, yea, of most of them. Hence, those which were wise quickly understood that what the church had got in multitude and number it had lost in beauty and glory. Chrysostom in particular complains of it frequently and in many places cries out, What have I to do with this multitude? A few serious believers are more worth than them all. Chrysostom. And that's the end of the Owen quote. The church's claimed independence in Scotland was compromised when the civil powers made it national. Even in the words of Andrew Melville to James VI at Falkland in 1596, the famous uh, statement... There are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland, often quoted as proof of Presbyterian defiance against state control. But uh, Melville went on to say, you recall, that uh, in the first of these kingdoms, James, he's not a king, nor a lord, nor a head, but a member. And in the last word, a member, was a large part of the problem. The king was a member in the kirk the magistrates, the civil rulers, were all members of the church. And history was to show that most of them had no business being there at all. So an acceptance and reliance upon civil aid, supposedly supposedly cooperating in the Presbyterian cause, was to prove disastrous in 17th century Scotland. And as a witness, let me quote none other than Samuel Rutherford himself. And here I'm quoting from... Mr. Rutherford's testimony to the covenanted work of Reformation, which, he, which goes down to the year 1649. And it's a strange thing that this document was always printed in old editions of Rutherford's letters, but it's not to be found, as far as I know, in any of the modern ones. Not even in the Banner of Truth modern one. Now somebody will have to explain how it disappeared, but uh, one can be a little bit suspicious, perhaps. Anyway, this is what Rutherford wrote. When our land and church were thus contending for that begun reformation, those in authority did still oppose the work, and there were not wanting men from among ourselves, men of proletical, proletical spirits, who, with some other time-serving courtiers, did not a little to undermine the building. And we, doting too much upon sound parliaments and lawful voting. Too much upon sound parliaments and lawful general assemblies fell from our first love. Our working public was too much in sequestration of estates, fining and imprisoning, more than in a compassionate mournfulness of spirit towards those whom we saw to oppose the work. In our assemblies, we were more upon form, citations, calling of witnesses, suspension from benefices, than spiritually to persuade and work upon the conscience by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. What way the army and the sword and the countenance of the nobles seem to sway, that way the censures carried. Then he said, referring to the present controversy, we are not for an army of saints and free of all mixture of ill-affected men, but it seems a high prevarication. I wonder if that's a printing mistake for provocation. It seems a high prevarication for churchmen to counsel and teach that the weight and trust of Christ and his kingdom should be laid upon the whole party of such as have been enemies to our cause. So Rutherford is talking about the period when the solemn and Covenant was enforced on all men over the age of 18. And even the most Presbyterian of later historians, Thomas McCree Jr., for example, admits that the history was marred by the mixture of things sacred and civil in the same bond. And various reasons are given why this happened, but I suggest to you, this is conviction I've come to, that it's bound up with laxity on church membership. The laxity on church membership led very largely to the situation that existed. And it's interesting to find William Henry Gould, Reformed Presbyterian, editor of John Owen's works, writing in the uh, 1880s and very clearly in sympathy with Owen's insistence on godliness and spirituality as requisite to membership in the church. And on that theme, Gould says, Owen stands honorably distinguished in Christian authorship. Now, there's no RP of 2, 200, sorry, 200 years before Gould who could have spoken like that. The independence, for Owen of course was that, regarded as opponents of the whole cause but Gould and uh, following him Professor John Murray are surely right in saying that church membership in the New Testament it is not enough to speak of mere outward profession secondly briefly no system of church government can claim to be perfectly scriptural and each may be said to have its own weakness. The weakness of Presbyterianism, and not only of Presbyterianism, is its tendency to the centralization of power. It was Hugh Martin who argued that it is presbyteries, not general assemblies, which are the radical courts of the church. But general assemblies have generally been the controlling powers, as you well know. And whatever we make of Council of Jerusalem of Acts 15, it's a very big step, I would suggest to you, to move from that uh, council to a position in which annually every decision is to be decided by General Assembly or its commissions. In defense of General Assemblies, it is always said that they have no authority other than to implement the clear directives of Scripture. But uh, as many Scottish historians have admitted, there have been many, many assemblies that have not done that. Cunningham says that... Uh, there have been many instances in which individuals possessed of authority or influence in the church have practiced odious and offensive tyranny. Now of course that can be practiced in presbyteries too but the fact is that a general assembly gives a larger scope for the exercise of pride and ambition and permanent rule by general assemblies and commissions of assembly has encouraged a centralization which is too easily abused. Thirdly, I've spent time on the national church question because I believe that in Scotland it skewed subsequent Presbyterian discussion. The opinion has lingered down the centuries that somehow Christian unity means being connected in one single church government. And it's not an accident then that Almost every branch of the Presbyterian communion in Scotland has employed the word church in the singular in her formal title. Not to do that it seemed to be assumed would be to be less than orthodox. And so it was an easy step from using the word church in the singular to assume to a denomination all the all that is true of church in the New Testament and to speak of leaving a denomination in the same breath as schism and so on. That comes surely from the way the title becomes confused. So the effort to bring all Christians of a nation under a common church government has not only failed; it has been bound to fail. The only way it could succeed is by the use of compulsion and coercion. It's a great. It was a great. It, it is a great mistake to suppose that all right-minded believers must come to the same conclusion, not only on the gospel but on details of church order. Robert L. Dabney says, Men being fallible always have differed and always will honestly differ in details. How vain is it to expect anything else when we look soberly over the past history of opinion, when we remember that the different races are reared in different climes, languages, political institutions and social usages, all of which have an unavoidable effect upon their ways of thought. When we consider the limitations and weakness of man's understanding... And above all, when we bear in mind that he is still at best a sinner, imperfectly sanctified, with passions and prejudices still subsisting, men cannot be made to think exactly alike if they think honestly, and this simply because they are men. So denominations have arisen in Protestantism largely because Christians have differed in their understanding of biblical issues, which, although not fundamental to salvation have been regarded by their founders as involving faithfulness to Christ and his word. So a free church writer wrote in 1845, almost every party now existing in Scotland arose out of some peculiar contest in which some important truth was bitterly assailed and had to be strenuously defended. And it was better for Scotland, that's the end of quote, it was better for Scotland that denominations should be formed in which men would conscientiously hold to convictions rather than the freedom to interpret Scripture should be suppressed in the so-called interests of unity. So the justification for a new denomination is the commitment of several congregations to stand together to uphold truth or truths or to carry out biblical biblical duties in a manner they cannot do as effectively as as individual churches or from within another denomination. A denomination is only sectarian when it expects to be regarded as the unique representative of the church universal and where it shows no regard for the unity of spirit which belongs to all those who are in Christ. So cooperation between denominations is a Christian duty provided it can be done without any suppression of truth or the condoning of serious error. And when a denomination loses the biblical justification for its existence, as has often happened in history, it forfeits any true claim to the loyalty of its members. So lastly, the current ecumenical emphasis on the organic union of denominations in order to Christian unity, is fundamentally misconceived. Oneness in organization is unnecessary to unity. What is essential is gospel truth and the graces of the Holy Spirit. And the men who are doing most for true unity are those who are giving themselves to those great priorities. So George Whitfield was not ignoring church unity, but doing more than anyone to promote it when he emphasized our supreme need of the Holy Spirit. I quote Whitfield: Were we but animated, led, and influenced by this Spirit, What a blessed union would there be among all the churches of Jesus Christ. It is a lack of more of this that now presently disunites us. I despair therefore of a greater union till a greater measure of the Spirit be poured from on high. Hence therefore I am resolved simply to preach the gospel of Christ and leave others to quarrel by and with themselves. Love... Forbearance, long-suffering, and frequent prayer to your dear Lord Jesus is the best way. Is the best way. Well, brethren, you've been very patient and enduring.